0: We're looking at Article 17 of the Belgic Confession tonight. It's found on page 61 in the Three Forms of Unity. We believe that our most gracious God, in his admirable wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had thus thrown himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself wholly miserable, was pleased to seek and comfort him when he, trembling, fled from his presence, promising him that he would give his son, who would be born of a woman, to bruise the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it may seem at first glance at this article that it does not deal with any significant doctrine of the faith. And yet I think if we look at it in the context of this uh, fourth part of the confession of faith, the part of the confession that deals with the doctrine of salvation, we see that it plays a very important role in that section. As we saw last week, the section begins with Article 16 and the doctrine of election, and goes through Article 26. When you look at those articles together as a whole, I think what you see is a kind of order of salvation that also includes the historical event of Christ's incarnation. Or, to put it a little differently, this is an order of salvation which is almost more a historical order of salvation, rather than a personal and subjective order of salvation. So, we begin, of course, with election. And we saw last week, of course, that election is the foundation of our salvation, the very beginning of our salvation in the eternal counsel of God. And if we skip for a moment over uh, Article 17, we'll come back to it, shortly, we see that the next step in the process is the Incarnation. So we come to that historical event of the Incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's dealt with in Articles 18 and 19. Then after that, we have the doctrine of the satisfaction of Christ for us in Article 20 and immediately after that in articles 20 and 21 rather and immediately after that the justification the doctrine of justification so we have the uh, what we call the work of Christ for us in suffering for us on the cross and obtaining for us our justification that's articles 20 to 23 and then we have two articles on sanctification articles 24 and 25 and this closes then with, the section closes with the article on Christ's intercession for us in Article 26. So you have this kind of historical order of salvation, election, incarnation, justification, sanctification, and intercession. Very different order of salvation from what we're used to, but nevertheless you can see it as a, an order of salvation. The question then is, how does this Article 17 fits into that. And the way it fits in, I think, is that it bridges the gap between God's eternal election of us before time began and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ 4,000 years after the creation of the world. So that what we have to understand is that the main uh, idea of this article is the promise of God, the promise that began to be fulfilled in the Incarnation and continued to be fulfilled then through the satisfaction, justification, sanctification, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. It's the promise that stands out here, and of course when you look back at the article, you see that he promised that he would give his son to bruise the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. So, the confession in referring to that very first promise of God in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is taking us to the very beginning of Old Testament history and it's really in a sense characterizing the whole of Old Testament history as being the age of the promise. And then, comes to the fulfillment of the promise in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, is, this uh, promise of God then is the beginning of the fulfillment of his purpose of election and the pointing forward to the salvation which our Lord Jesus Christ actually accomplished 4,000 years after the promise was first spoken. Now there are, I think, some other ideas in this article that we want to talk about. We have uh, the idea of the wisdom and goodness of God here. We have the idea of God seeking and comforting man in the garden. And we have the idea also expressed in the very beginning of the article that man had thrown himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself wholly miserable. So we're going to look at three different things in this article. We're first going to look at that throwing man, throwing himself into physical and spiritual death and making himself miserable. Then we're going to look at that idea of God being pleased to seek and comfort man. And then finally, we're going to look at the promise of God to man, the means by which he comforted man and the promised to bruise the head of the serpent in his son. So we begin then with that idea of man threw himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself miserable. Now, when we talk about physical and spiritual death, we know, of course, that physical death refers to the death of the body, the separation of the body and the soul, and the return of the body to the dust of the ground. And when we talk about spiritual death, we are talking about the death of the soul, which means, of course, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that we are dead to God, that we are dead to righteousness, that there is no spiritual life in us, whatever. And, of course, these two, physical and spiritual death, both reach their culmination in the eternal torment of body and soul in hell, under the everlasting wrath of God. So the the central idea of death really is that it is the wrath of God against our sins. His rejection of us as those who may not stand any longer in His holy presence, who are polluted and corrupted by sin and deserve the judgment of death. But the the, uh, confession says that we threw ourselves into this physical and spiritual death. And this idea of throwing, I think, communicates to us two different things. First of all, it communicates to us that this uh, was a voluntary act. A voluntary act on the part of Adam and Eve, or a voluntary act on the part of man. Uh, Adam was created good in the image of God. He was, he was given by God the commandment not to eat of the tree of life. He understood that commandment clearly. He uh, had heard what God's penalty or transgression of the commandment would be. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. He knew all these things in his state of perfection. And yet, by a choice of his own will, by a free act of his will, he threw himself into uh, spiritual and physical deaths. So that's the first thing. It was an entirely voluntary act. He was tempted, but he was not compelled in any way, to commit that sin. In fact, he could have resisted the sin. God had given him the ability to stand in righteousness, and he did not. He chose, rather, to sin. So that's the first thing that's implied in that throwing ourselves into death. The other thing that's implied in it is that it was a reckless act. And when we talk about recklessness, of course we mean that there is an inadequate consideration of its consequences. Whenever a man acts recklessly, we, we know that he's not thinking ahead, that he's not thinking about what may be the result of his behavior. And this is what Adam did. He did not adequately consider the consequences of the act of disobedience to God. He knew what the consequences were, but he did not keep those consequences in mind. And when the devil tempted him, when the devil made the act of disobedience look like a pleasant and useful thing for him to do, he chose to believe the lie of the devil and to disbelieve the word of God. It was a a very reckless act. To believe the devil and to reject the word of God certainly is a reckless thing to do. And the confession then adds to this that by this act man made himself wholly miserable. Now in our fallen state as we are by nature we are very much inclined to deny this. There may be some few men in the uh, world, who would acknowledge that they are wholly miserable. But on the whole, most men would either say, I think, that they are happy, or that at least, even if they are not happy now, they know the way to happiness. And yet, when you review the history of mankind, through the time from Adam and Eve's fall to the present, What you see is, I think, a a contradiction of that basic claim of man that he is happy or that at least he knows the way to happiness. And you can see this because man is always restlessly seeking something. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they rest in you, but you see that restlessness of man in his constantly changing philosophies, for example. Philosophy is supposed to be a way to happiness, and men seek in their philosophies uh, happiness. That's the basic idea. It's the pursuit of happiness that they, they want. And they find their, um, in their philosophies, they think, the way to happiness. And yet, no philosophy satisfies them. Ultimately, their philosophies fail them, and they go on to the next philosophy. And so philosophies are continually changing. You see it in their constantly changing religions. Man goes from one religion to another, seeking the way of happiness. And never finding it, abandons this religion and goes on to the next one. The truth of God remains unchangeable from age to age. And the people of God know that in that truth, they can find happiness. In that truth, they find liberty, true liberty. The truth shall make you free, our Lord Jesus Christ says. You find men throughout the ages constantly changing their moral standards and their ways of life. And we see that happening, especially in our own day, don't we? We think that, men think that they're going to find happiness In all the perversions that we see around us, the multitude of perversions, the changing moral standards become the way for them to seek happiness and the changing ways of life. So men are always pursuing this way of life, but only the law of God remains unchanged from age to age. And it is in the sphere of that law that we find that the yoke of our Lord Jesus Christ is an easy yoke and his burden light and the fulfillment of his promise that he will give rest to our laboring and weary souls. So man is miserable, fundamentally miserable, even though he doesn't want to acknowledge it. But in his misery, he will not seek God. He rejects God. And always plunges deeper and deeper into the darkness which he has chosen. Makes his misery greater and seals his own condemnation. We are a holy, miserable race. So that's the first point of the article that we threw ourselves into physical and spiritual death and that the result of this voluntary act this voluntary and reckless act we are miserable. The second point of the article however is that God was pleased to seek and comfort us. And that's a very striking statement because the Confession makes reference here to God's seeking of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they had fallen. And when you read what God said to Adam and Eve and to the serpent there after he had come and sought Adam and Eve, you find that it's all curse. God came first to the man, to Adam, and said to him, What have you done? Have you eaten of the tree that I forbade you to eat of? And Adam says, It was my wife's fault. He threw Eve under the bus. And he goes to Eve, and he says, What have you done? And Eve says, It was the serpent's fault. The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. And he goes to the serpent, and God curses the serpent, beginning with verse 14. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and the seed of the woman will bruise your head. that's his curse on the serpent it's it's words of curse that God is speaking, and then he returns to the woman, and he, he curses the woman. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and many most commentators I think, are agreed that what he means is, I will greatly multiply the sorrow." of your conception in pain you shall bring forth children so that's a parallel statement your desire shall be for your husband and I think what that means is that she will want to rule over her husband and he shall rule over you that is you will not succeed in your purpose and his rule over you will not be any longer beneficent so he cursed the woman And then he cursed Adam. Verses 18 and following. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. It's curses, he curses the serpent, he curses the woman, and he curses Adam himself. And then he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and closed the way to the tree of life to them so that they could no longer partake of that sign of God's fellowship and of God's blessing. He denied them his fellowship. He thrust them out of his presence. He gave them over. To death, And yet the confession describes this work of God as comfort. He came to seek and comfort man, the confession says. When man fled from him. And of course that's the basic reaction of sinful man to God. That he flees from God. When God reveals himself in his righteousness and in his justice, man is terrified of him. And this is, of course, why man always rejects God and seeks some other solution to his problem besides God. God is a terror to him in his sin. And he hates God and he flees from the presence of God. All man's religions and his philosophies and his changing moral standards are simply his way of denying the existence of God, of rejecting the whole idea that God can have anything to say about his destiny or his happiness and an expression of his terror of this God who comes to him in judgment. Nevertheless, God came to comfort. And that comfort is found in the curse that he pronounced on the serpent. It's not really even expressly stated those words were not words that God spoke to Adam and Eve. They were not words that were in the first place words of blessing. They were words of cursing. And nevertheless, there is implied in those words words of God to the serpent in that cursing of the serpent, a word of hope and of comfort for us in our sins. And such a word of hope and comfort that makes our fleeing from the presence of God as foolish and as reckless as our initial sin. It is a continuation of the folly and the recklessness of our initial throwing ourselves into death. Implied in that cursing of the serpent is God's promise, the promise to his people. He comes then to comfort, and he comes to comfort by means of the promise to fulfill his purpose of election from the foundation of the world, and to speak of the means, the primary means of the fulfillment of that election in the incarnation and saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we call that curse upon the serpent, in Genesis 3, verse 15, the mother promise. It is the beginning of God's work of salvation. God came, notice, immediately after the fall with that word of promise. He did not delay his intervention, his saving work. Adam and Eve sinned. After they had sinned, he came with the word of his promise. There are three things that I think we should notice about that promise. In the first place, God promises a division in the human race. A division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He says there will be a seed of the woman and there will also be a seed of the serpent. Now that seed of the serpent is of course man in his fallenness, man in rebellion against God, enslaved to sin, and serving the prince of the power of the air, who works in the children of disobedience. But the seed of the woman is God's elect, those whom he saves out of that fallen human race. According to his sovereign purpose, God then comes to man and he says, I'm going to make this division between one man and another, between one seed and another. There will be a seed of the woman according to my eternal purpose of election. There will be a seed of the serpent according to my eternal purpose of reprobation. Furthermore, the second part of that promise is that he will put enmity between these two seeds. We call this the antithesis. Always, from this moment on, the seed of the serpent will be opposed to and will be seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. And we see that happening already in Genesis chapter 4, the very next verse of the chapter, when Uh, Cain murders his brother Abel. We can't take that, people of God, out of its context and say of that, well, that was just an evidence of the wickedness of man. No, that's not all it is. It certainly is an evidence of the wickedness of fallen man. But it is an attack of the seed of the serpent on the seed of the woman. It is the serpent seeking to destroy that seed of the woman and to prevent that seed of the woman from continuing. And that's what we have to see throughout the whole of Old Testament history. It's always the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent attacking the seed of the woman. We see it in Lamech. We see it in Ham and Canaan. We see it in the Tower of Babel. We see it in the period of the Judges. We see it in Israel in the wilderness. We see it in Egypt. We see it all through the Old Testament, over and over again. The attacks of the seed of the woman of the serpent on the seed of the woman, always seeking to destroy. And that's why I read also Revelation 12, because Revelation 12 itself characterizes this um, history of the Old Testament in exactly this way. At the very beginning of that chapter, the great sign appears in heaven, the sign of the woman, who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. There's the woman, the woman of Genesis 3, verse 15. The church of God in the Old Testament. And this woman is with child. That's the seed of the woman. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And then another sign appears in heaven. And this is the great red dragon, who is later, whom we're told later is the devil and Satan and that old serpent a fiery red dragon, and he stands before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. That's the scripture's characterization of the whole of Old Testament history, the serpent standing before the woman waiting to devour her child. She brings forth a child and the child is immediately caught up to God and to his throne. But notice, too, that then what the scriptures do is they go on to characterize New Testament history as partaking of this very same warfare of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. You find it in verse, um, to verses 10 and following. First, you have in those verses a celebration of the victory of Michael and his angels over the dragon and his angels, they cast them out of heaven so that they can no longer be there. And so the saints and the angels in heaven celebrate now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And verse 13, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So this is history, a fundamental fact in history, that the seed of the serpent hates and seeks to destroy the woman and her seed. And the seed of the woman fights back with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and defends herself by putting on the whole armor of God, as described in Ephesians 6. There's war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, all through history. Because of that enmity which God put between these two seeds. That's the second element, then, of that word of God in Genesis 3. And the third element is, of course, that God promised victory to the seed of the woman. It often did not seem in the Old Testament that the seed of the woman was victorious. At the time of Noah, at the time of Babel, During the period of the judges, at the end of the period of the kings, Israel in the wilderness, Israel in Egypt, did not seem that the seed of the woman would be victorious. And the people of God often then cry out with David in Psalm 12, Save, Lord, for the godly man ceases, the faithful vanish from among the sons of men. You cannot believe that there is any hope. And yet the promise of victory is there, ready in that initial word of God. The serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He will inflict a wound upon that seed. But the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman will inflict a mortal wound. On the serpent. There is victory for the seed of the woman. We see, of course, that victory celebrated also in Psalm 12. The Psalm does not end with that complaint of David that we read already, but it goes on to say, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. And notice this especially in verses 6 and 7, talking about the word of the Lord, or his promise. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. And that's what Revelation 12 is all about too. The devil knows that he has but a short time. And ultimately he will be cast into the lake of fire. So it's that promise of God in Genesis 3 verse 15 only implied. Because it's implied in what is really a word of curse to the serpent, that we find the comfort of which the confession speaks. And it's in that promise of God that we find the bridging of the gap between God's eternal election and the historical event of our Lord Jesus Christ's incarnation. For he is the ultimate seed of the woman. We referred to before to Genesis chapter three, where it is said that the promise was made to him, to the seed, who is Christ. And the confession itself cites Galatians chapter four verse four. He was born of a woman and under the law to redeem us who were under the law. And it is by means then of that promise that he blessed us. And it is in that promise that we find the revelation of his wisdom and his goodness. How wise he is to accomplish our salvation in such a wonderful and glorious way. In the seed of the woman who of God is made unto us wisdom. And, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption and how good he is to us who do not deserve anything from him except the condemnation that has come on all others. How great is his mercy and how worthy he is of being glorified in all our lives. May God bless us with his words.